Welcome to the Inquisitive Air Podcast. This is Simon speaking, and today we're going to be talking about avian dermatology with Dr. Bob Donnelly. Bob is a registered specialist in avian medicine. He's currently the head of the Avian and Exotic Pet Service and a professor at the University of Queensland. He also currently teaches exotic medicine and surgery to both the veterinary and veterinary technology students there. Bob is also the author of the book Avian Medicine and Surgery in Practice, now in its second edition, and an editor of the book Reptile Medicine and Surgery in Clinical Practice. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this podcast with Dr. Bob Donnelly. So, welcome Bob. Hi, good evening Simon, how are you? Great. So, I think first thing off, it'd be great to just know how you became an exotic vet and maybe if you can tell us a little bit about your journey when you first graduated. Well, I graduated in 1982 from the University of Queensland and like most young male vets at that time, um, wanted to be a dairy vet. So I applied for a, a few jobs in dairy practices around Australia and was unsuccessful in getting any positions. Um, but at that time, there was a, a great shortage of jobs compared to the number of new graduates around. As a consequence, I ended up in a small animal practice up in Bundaberg, and I'd been there for about six months, and the local Budrigar club asked my boss to give them a talk, and he immediately flicked it over to me and said, oh, you can do this. And so I had to give a talk to these budgie breeders, and I had very little idea about birds. We'd been given only two lectures uh, in, um, in our final year by Charlie Prescott. And uh, Charlie Prescott was a, quite a renowned small animal vet, um, but he was also renowned for the disorganisation of his lectures. He was a lovely, lovely gentleman, uh, but he gave the same lecture twice, and that covered us for birds. <laughs> so I read the 1981 Sydney Postgraduate uh, Foundation's conference proceedings on birds and found myself intrigued by them. And it was, uh, in the words of Tom Hungerford from the, um, the uh, Sydney Post grad at the time, it was the Goanna track to success. I just uh, kept going from one thing to another. Um, I got my membership in avian medicine in 1991 and my fellowship in 2003. I sold my practice in 2010 um, and took up the position at the University of Queensland, which is uh, where I've been for the last nine years. Does that make you the first avian specialist in Australia? Uh, no, I was the third. Oh, the third. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure. Uh, Ross Perry and Patricia McWhorter were the first two. Yeah. Um, and Shane Radel from Charles Sturt University. He and I sat our exams together. Uh, but I've always told him that because Donnelly starts with a D and Radel starts with an R, I'm the third and he's the fourth. <laughs> Fair enough. So just to dig a little bit deeper, I was just wondering if you can remember any um, big decision that you made that really made a big difference during your whole career. Uh, so the easy one to say is in 1985, I decided to ask my um, girlfriend to marry me. Oh, and fantastic. We got married on the 2nd of February, 1985 and have been married now for 34 years, and we have two wonderful children. Um, marrying Marie has provided me with a, um, a rock throughout my entire life. Life hasn't been easy, but life isn't meant to be easy. And whenever I have felt despair, Marie has always been there to encourage me, to sacrifice for me, and to push me on. 
That's a good answer. I think this would be a good time to now segue on to what we're talking about today, which is avian dermatology. And so to get a little bit of context, I was wondering if you could start by just telling us what are some of the major differences that you see between avian skin and mammalian skin? Well, the first and most obvious difference is feathers versus hair. Um, birds have feathers that serve a variety of purposes. Um, the primary purpose is to enable them to fly, um, and it's an evolutionary adaptation that's made birds one of the most successful vertebrates on the planet. It's a warm-blooded animal that can move from food, force, food source to food source, escape climatic extremes to um, search for a suitable mate um, to display themselves to that mate and to conceal themselves from predators. So feathers are probably the first and obvious difference. The second difference is the thickness of the skin. Um, for the majority of birds, the skin thickness is only a few cell layers thick. In some of the larger non-flighter birds like chickens and uh, ratites, it's thicker. But in your average household parrot, the skin is thin enough that you can actually see the underlying muscle through it. Uh, you wet it down with a little bit of alcohol and there's the, the muscles there right underneath. So it's a very thin skin. Um, it doesn't have much in the way of a dermis. It's more uh, epidermis and then you've got a fatty subcutaneous layer. Uh, in pet birds in particular, less so in wild birds. There's virtually no um, glands in the skin. Uh, there are some glands in the ear canal and uh, the uropygial or preen gland at the base of the tail, and that's about it. So those, yeah, those are the major differences. Oh, and I should say the other difference is that the uh, the skin is very closely attached to the underlying muscles and and uh, bones, so there's not a lot of give, not a lot of uh, movement within bird skin compared to a dog or a cat skin. Fair enough. Um, can you give us an example of some of the clinical implications of that? Well, firstly, first and foremost, because the skin's so thin, anything you put on the skin is going to be absorbed through the skin and into the body. As a minor example, when I use alcohol to prep the skin to collect blood, um, I will see the bird become drowsy for 10 minutes afterwards. And I used to think that was hypovolemia from taking the blood until I came to realise it was actually the birds were slightly intoxicated um, from the alcohol having been absorbed. Oh, wow. On a more serious point, though, um, cortisone is something that should never be used in birds um, because they're, they're hypersensitive to the deleterious effects of corticosteroids. And topically applied corticosteroids are the worst way to, to use them. And so putting on a cream onto the skin that contains um, cortisone um, can be extremely dangerous to the bird. And I've seen birds go into liver and kidney failure where uh, vets have been using creams such as Neosporin or um, Neocort is probably the old one that people used to use a lot, Neomycin and Hydrocortisone. And they would apply that quite liberally to the skin and the birds would, over a period of a few days, develop renal failure and, and um, liver failure. Yeah, that's a really big one. Now, I did want to ask um, a little bit about molting. Um, is there anything that vets should know about that? Birds molt their feathers twice a year um, in general. The prenuptial molt, which occurs in uh, spring, early spring, late winter, early spring and the post-nuptial molt, which occurs in late summer, early autumn. So these are the, the molt before the breeding season and after the breeding season. 
birds will continue to molt all year round, but the molts in our captive birds are heaviest at those two times. Um, in between molts, if you cut a feather, it's not going to regrow. It will only grow grow again when that feather is molted out and a new feather pushes it out. So molting is a, a natural process, um, but it can be inhibited by uh, problems such as being kept indoors all the time with an excessive day length, uh, improper nutrition where they're getting too much fat, too few proteins and uh, vitamins and minerals in their diets. So seed is a classic example. Um, and the colour of feathers um, not only is a, um, a reflection on the bird's species, but it also reflects the bird's diet and health status. Um, we will see, for example, um, cockatiels with liver disease or thyroid problems will become a, um, a much darker colour and the hair will not, the feathers will develop a hair-like appearance because the barbs and barbules aren't interlocking. Now, that's, those feathers don't molt out readily because the bird is um, nutritionally very unwell and metabolically unwell, and so they don't respond to the normal sort of uh, molting cycles, particularly if they have got hypothyroidism. Okay. I just wanted to take it back when you were talking about the avian skin and it being thin. Um, one actual query that I had about that was, is intradermal skin testing possible in a bird? We did try it about 20 years ago. We were doing some trials here in Australia, a group of us scattered around Australia, different practices. And I think I would challenge any of us to go back in time now and say, yes, we were definitely giving that intradermally. Um, I think half the time we were giving it subcutaneously, even though we were using 27, 29-gauge needles, um, I think we would be hard put proving that we were intradermal. So skin allergy testing is not readily performed in birds, not only because of the thickness of the skin, but also because uh, we don't think that they respond to allergens the way that uh, mammals do. Thank you for that. Now, onto another feather topic, and I know this is basic, but I think it's useful for people that are just starting in avian medicine, and that's wing clipping. I was just wondering maybe you could elaborate on what your thoughts are on wing clipping, um, and when you do that, if ever, and then also talking about, if, if you are going to do it, what feathers uh, do you clip? Well, wing clipping is a, a very double-edged sword. Um, while it can save birds from household hazards, um, it can also put them at risk of other hazards that the owners may not have thought about. Um, I once had a pet shop owner tell me that wing clips keep birds safe indoors, and I think that's probably the best way to think about them. Um, if your bird is staying indoors, um, then a wing clip may be necessary to stop it from flying into things like the ceiling fan, windows, um, the sink full of boiling water, uh, hot oil on the stove. These are all things that I've seen, injuries and, uh, and disasters that I've seen occur to birds. Um, conversely, though, a wing clip, particularly one that's been done badly, can cause a bird to crash heavily into the ground. In heavy-bodied birds like galahs and cockatoos, that frequently results in them hitting keel first and they'll split the skin over the crest of the keel and that is obviously very painful and they'll start chewing at it and you'll end up with this massive lesion on the chest, external mutilation, and that's a surgical job to repair that. Um, the other type of injury that we'll see is a tail split injury 
which was seen in the light-bodied birds. They tend to pull up at the last minute and hit the ground tail first, and the skin between their vent and the tail base splits on the underneath, on the ventral aspect, and that's also a surgical repair. The skin, these lacerations are usually quite deep. The split is quite deep, and they have to be sutured to control the bleeding. So that's an example where, uh, in particular, um, people have cut only one wing or they've cut all the primary feathers and secondary feathers on both wings. I frequently tell my clients that one-winged clips are a really good source of income for bird vets like me yep. because of the number of injuries that they cause. Um, I also point out to people um, that if you, were an air, if you were flying in an aeroplane, would you rather have both engines fail or would you rather have one engine full on and the other engine failing completely? and you would just go into a spin and crash and burn. And when you start relating the ability of a bird to fly to flying in an airplane, um, I find that people more readily understand it. Great. That's a really good analogy. I so, wanted oh, – sorry. Well, what, I, what I tell people is the primary feathers, the long ones on the end, those are the engines. <laughs> the secondary feathers, which are the ones running from the wrist to the elbow, they're the flaps and the air brakes. And ah. the tertiary feathers are just a space filler. And then you have your covert feathers on the top and the bottom on the leading edge of the wing, and that's there to cut through the air and minimise the amount of turbulence. So if you clip the wings properly, you're just going to cut five to seven of the primaries on both sides, but you leave the secondaries alone. Bad wing clips, they've either taken primaries, or I've seen people leave the primaries on and cut the secondaries, Oh, wow. So the bird's fully powered but has no flaps or air brakes. And the other one I see is whether I just cut all the feathers on one or both wings. If they cut both wings, you've got a flying brick. If you cut only one, you've got a spinning brick. So uh, they're, they're disastrous uh, wing trims. And I'd like to say that that's been done by owners and pet shop employees and people like that, but I've seen too many of those done by vets and I've had lots of vets argue with me that this is the way they've always done it. Oh, really? Okay. People, people need to change. I also point out to people when they tell me that, that we used to hang children for theft. But we don't do that anymore either. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, yeah, and it's surprising that you still see that nowadays, but I, I guess it, still things happen. Um, Dare I say it's the older generation of vets, my generation, that are still doing that. <laughs> All right. Now... Uh, on from there, I did want to talk about your general approach to how you manage a bird with a skin or a feather problem. So I thought if we could start, maybe if we could talk about what are some of the major questions that are important to ask when you're presented with one of these sorts of patients? Well, I, always, I teach my students that you have to approach any of these cases um, getting a history in two parts. You have to get a history of the patient and then you have to get a history of the problem. Now, the issue that we have to deal with is that the client always wants to talk about the problem. But if we don't understand the patient, how can we understand why it's got a problem? So we need to go back and get a history of the bird itself. We need to know what species it is, what age it is, what sex it is. We need to know what diet it's been on. We need to know if it's been on any medication for any other problems. We need to know what um, lifestyle does this bird live? Is it an indoor bird or an outdoor bird? 
if it's an indoor bird, uh, what time do the lights go out? Does it have a night cage or is it just having its cage covered up? All of these things that are going to be affecting this bird's um, physiological axis, if you like, the, um, the hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid glands and the gonads are all controlling the quality of the skin and the feathers. So we also, as I said, have a close look at diet. Um, you know, we, we discuss diet on virtually every time we're having a consultation with a client, regardless of the problem, because uh, malnutrition is such a common underlying problem. Once we've got a, a better understanding of how the bird lives, then we start wanting to talk about what the problem is. Why are they here today? So we'll ask them what the problem is, and we ask them to explain it in very clear um, unequivocal language. We don't want them trying to interpret it. You know, the bird pulls his feathers out is a good example. That's a very clear description. The bird pulls his feathers out. The client adding to that saying, because he's incredibly itchy. Well, you don't know if the bird's itchy. So, but you're putting a construct and interpretation onto it. And that limits your vision. You, you put up shutters and you're not seeing left or right. You're just focusing on why would this bird be itchy? So you have to approach it with a very clear mind and very, use very clear, simple language. You know, why are you here today? Don't try and interpret that. Is it getting any better? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? How is it affecting the bird's appetite, its thirst, defecation, urination, its general behaviour? Are other birds affected by this? What other treatment have you tried? Because they sure as hell have tried something. Um, vets are the last call. They don't come to us until they've been down to the pet shop, rung their uncle, gone onto Facebook, done all of those sorts of things and tried all sorts of witchcraft and herbs and potions. So until you've worked out exactly what else they've tried, um, you're not quite sure what you're going to approach it with. Okay. Just a quick question about diet. Can you tell us what is a good diet and what is not a good diet? Um, a diet that is too much of one thing is always bad. So a diet that is all seed is bad. A diet that is all pellets is bad. Okay, And I'm not talking in terms of varying the bird's diet for its uh, mental health. I'm talking about the fact that birds come from Africa. They come from India. Southeast Asia, Indonesia, the Philippines. They come from Australasia, including New Zealand. Um, there's a, a parrot, a little Tahitian lorikeet um, sitting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then you hit South America and you've got all of your macaws and Amazons and conyers. You've got birds that are living in rainforest and jungle, birds that are living in desert. You've got birds living in New Zealand in the snow. So there's a whole range of species in parrots I'm talking about, 365 parrots, parrot species coming from about five different uh, geographical areas with every known um, climatic and geographical extreme. So how can we possibly say that one diet fits all birds? So how can we say that a, say, for example, a budrigar, which is an arid zone bird living in central Australia, has the same nutritional requirements as a macaw living in the rainforest of the Amazon. So the answer is no diet fits one bird or all birds. So we have to mix and match our diets, trying to replicate to a certain extent the, uh, the diets that these birds evolved in. But 
at the same time recognising that we've got them in captivity, there are some changes we have to make. You know, for example, lorikeets have evolved as a high energy user. So their diet is primarily simple sugars that fuel their high metabolic rate. If you take a lorikeet and put it into an aviary or a cage, restricting its exercise and therefore reducing its energy output, but you maintain that energy input, then you're going to end up with an obese bird very quickly. Sorry. Formulated diets or pelleted diets were, were um, brought out as being the next best thing to slice bread. The problem is that the, the people who design these diets, in some cases, um, simply took a poultry ration and extrapolated from there. One of the key things that they missed was that chickens need a huge amount of calcium. They're laying 300 to 360 eggs a year, so their diet has to be about 4 to 5% calcium. If you go over half a percent of calcium in the diet for a budrigar, you'll kill it. It dies of renal failure. Macaws, about 0.9 of a percent. So we have in, in our parent species a much lower level or much lower requirement for calcium than you have with your, um, your bigger heavy egg-producing birds. So therefore, a formulated diet by itself is dangerous for those sorts of birds. So my general recommendation for any bird is to feed it about 60% pellets and about 35% vegetables and maybe some low GI fruits. So low GI is distinct from apples, which are a high GI. Um, strawberries, for example, are a good low GI fruit that is far better substitute or far better fruit for birds than an apple is. Apple a day no longer keeps the doctor away. <laughs> Yeah, so I tell people, um, feed them on this. Budrigars and cockatiels, I'm happier for them to have a, a seed-based diet where they're getting uh, millet and panicum and canary seeds but no sunflower seed, so long as that they are being fed and they are eating um, a good, rich of, uh, diet of vegetables and then perhaps supplement that with a little bit of shell grit. And the reason is I have seen too many budgies and cockatiels where I or other vets have converted them over to a pelleted diet, um, die of renal failure because oh, of the high right. calcium levels in it. So I'm very, very conscious about what effect we're having on those birds. So, yeah, you're playing off. You've got to balance your diets out and, and look at what are the known health problems. And a lot of this, unfortunately, is not published. It's stuff that you learn from experience and from talking to colleagues. Sure. What, what vegetables do you like giving? Uh, are there any particular ones you go for? I tell people to feed three colours, uh, green, red and yellow. So your green vegetables, I'm, I'm a Tony Abbott person. I like to give um, three-word replies. Um, so, yeah, green, red and yellow. Green vegetables, peas and beans, broccoli, silver beet, uh, milk thistle, dandelion out of the garden. Um, your yellow vegetables, corn, sweet potato, pumpkin and carrot. And your red vegetables, um, beetroot and capsicum and chilies. And I consider those to be ideal vegetable mix to give birds. Most people these days are fairly busy. Their life is, is hectic. Um, and so a good quality mixed frozen vegetable, um, bag, of, bag of mixed frozen vegetables, is a, a reasonable way to feed your birds. Um, they're bite-sized. They're juicy. If you feed them on the, the higher cost ones, the Bees, peas, and beans, peas, and carrots, and corn, rather than ones that's um, 
bulked up with potato and cauliflower, um, you'll actually have a fairly nutritious diet for those birds. Great. Can you also elaborate on why you ask owners whether they use a night cage or not? Well, I firmly believe that many birds uh, experience behavioural disorders associated with lack of sleep. Um, in the wild, they would normally sleep from as soon as the sun goes down until it comes up again. In captivity, we make them stay up all night watching rubbish TV, uh, reality TV shows and so forth. And these birds become jittery and anxious. They become um, more likely, in my opinion, to start damaging their feathers. Um, they also are stimulated by the longer day length to become reproductively active. And if they're then supplemented with a high-fat diet like seed and an owner who insists on patting them below the neck, mm. kissing them and so forth, things that simulate courtship behaviour of, um, of normal birds, those things lead to birds starting to lay excessive number of eggs or developing territorial aggression. So one of the things that I use to break up that, uh, that routine for birds is to ask the clients to put them in a night cage, which is separate from their day cage. It's in a quiet, dark room. It, the cage isn't covered over. Covers don't shut out light and sound and noise. Um, it only covers out the amount of um, air the bird is getting. Certainly doesn't keep the birds warm. So putting the bird into the spare bedroom, uh, the laundry or the garage, somewhere where it can just go to sleep and get a good night's sleep, and putting it in there as the sun goes down and bring it out when the sun comes up, that ensures that the bird gets a good night's sleep. It also cuts out that diurnal stimulation that's associated with the winter months and coming into spring. And it can also help to reduce territorial aggression because now they're no longer seeing their cage as their only place of residence. And consequently, these birds will, um, if they're there in their cage all the time, they can become quite possessive of that cage. And, and one of the things that they can do is become very aggressive towards the clients. I see what you mean. Now, moving on to the physical exam, I was wondering if you could please share with us some of your top tips for how to do a good clinical exam, uh, in particular, uh, how you go about looking at uh, skin and feather problems. Okay, well, my first tip is, um, where it's appropriate, anaesthetise the bird. Um, when I come to do a physical exam on a large macaw, um, I generally anaesthetise them because I can do a far more thorough job with less stress to the bird and less potential danger to myself. If I am doing it on a conscious bird, um, I will sit and look at the bird for a while before I start to handle it. So a distance exam, as we're taught to do with dogs and cats, is very important with birds, and the reason is that birds will mask signs of illness. So they will pretend to be okay for a few minutes, but then they'll get to a stage where they can't hide signs of illness anymore. And it's better that you find that out before you take the bird out of the cage than you do than you do finding out when you take it out. So catch the bird quickly. Have a detailed examination. Start at the front, work your way through to the back. If you think the bird is getting too stressed, Put it back in the cage. I frequently will ask the owners to take it out of the cage because that's less stressful to the bird than me taking it out. Um, some owners refuse to do that. Other owners um, are delighted to be a part of the process. When it comes to looking at the skin, you've got to part the feathers and look at it. 
Some people will use alcohol, rubbing alcohol to part the feathers. Um, I prefer not to, but you can actually see quite a bit of the skin just by blowing on the feathers and having a, a look at what you're seeing underneath the, uh, the coverage of those covert feathers. So once you've got the bird um, in the hand or the bird um, anaesthetised, just be thorough. Start at the front, work your way through to the back, look at every system, every point of anatomy as you go along. If you are going to anaesthetise it, do a distant exam before you take it out so as to make sure that it's not having any respiratory issues, not having any um, issues with its aggression or if the bird is, in fact, really stressed. So make sure that you've had a good look at it, then give it an anaesthetic. Um, I always intubate, other vets don't, um, but then you can have a detailed look at the bird um, and do other things at the same time. So if you're, example, planning on collecting a blood sample from the bird and taking some radiographs, then leave the physical examination till you've anaesthetised it to do those things and then do everything under the same anaesthetic. Remember the six Ps, prior preparation and planning prevents a poor performance. So you always make sure you have everything ready before you touch the bird, whether you're doing a conscious or an ethotized. So those are probably the main hints I would give. Okay, great. Are there any other diagnostic tests that you will do, particularly with the feathers? I don't know, do you do um, pulp cytology or even you know skin scrapes, things like that as well during that anaesthetic? Um, pulp cytology, there's two schools of thought on it. Um, John Chitty in the UK um, loves it. Uh, Alan Fudge in the US hates it. And then most people fall somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, I think if you've got an inflamed feather follicle, um, you can certainly get a lot out of pulp cytology. So the feather follicle is swollen and puffy. Um, if, on the other hand, the feather follicle looks fairly normal, I don't think you're going to get much value out of pulp cytology. Skin biopsies are always very useful. Um, but if you're doing a skin biopsy, you should also biopsy an area that's not affected so that you can see whether this is a generalised skin condition or whether this is just localised to that one area. Um, if you are also doing a skin biopsy, make sure you include a couple of feather follicles in that biopsy. Skin scrapings are a waste of time. Um, the skin is so thin, um, you're actually going to end up doing a muscle scraping before very long. So I don't generally advocate a skin scraping the only exception being if I've got a, a very hyperkeratotic lesion um, and we'll see things like scaly face mite um, on the feet of birds. If you're not sure what it is, you can do a skin scraping there. Same uh, budgie on the face. Um, you can also see a condition uh, with a harparynchus mite in wild lorikeets where they get mite eggs, egg nests, uh, which are these hyperkeratotic, hyperkeratotic lumps on the skin and the feathers, and they're worth biopsy. But normal avian skin, um, it's very dangerous to to do a scraping. You're better off to just do a straight biopsy. Okay, sure. And when you talked about getting biopsies from two different locations, certainly for the abnormal skin, you would just take it from the lesion, but uh, for the other spot, is there any good areas where you would normally take that? Um, back of the neck is usually my favourite place. Um, birds usually can't reach that with their beak. So you're not seeing the, um, the effects. You know, for example, most of my skin biopsies come back with um, a histopathological process consistent with the bird chewing at its skin. So you need to be able to compare that 
to um, to an area where the bird can't reach with its beak and see whether there's a similar lesion. Yeah, that makes sense. The other question I would like to ask was, can you describe how you do a pulp cytology? You need to find two things. You need to find an inflamed follicle containing a feather that has still got a bit of pulp in it. The pulp is um, the blood and nerves running up the shaft of the feather in a newly erupted feather. Okay, that is the, it's a rich area for, for cells to obtain, to look at. Um, and so what you're going to do is to pluck that feather out and then you just use a scalpel to uh, open the, the, uh, the feather shaft or to just squeeze out the pulp onto a microscope slide. And then you do, in practice, a diff-quick stain and a gram stain. So you diff-quick, um, you're looking for inflammatory cells, perhaps viral inclusion bodies, um, although they don't, they don't show up all that well with diff-quick. Um, you've got to be very careful because often these cells have got keratin pigment granules in them, and that's easily mistaken for the unwary um, to be uh, cocci. So that's why you're doing a gram stain as well to see if there are bacteria involved. I see. Okay. Do you also advocate doing a fecal um, smear or fecal float as well as part of that exam? Uh, many years ago, the um, the Americans discovered a an association in cockatiels between feather damaging behaviour and the presence of giardia in the faeces. Nobody's really been able to establish the causative link, but it's a well-recognised issue that if a cockatiel has giardia, it may have feather-damaging behaviour. However, people have then extrapolated that across to every other species of bird, and any bird with feather-damaging behaviour gets screened for giardia, even though it's only ever been recognised in cockatiels, and, I dare I say, only in the US. Now we're starting to think that the giardia that the Americans were seeing uh, was a protozoan parasite called spironucleus, um, and we were calling it coclosoma at one stage, and I think we need to have some multicentric studies using PCR to identify exactly what protozoa we're looking at. But that's about the only case where an intestinal parasite is associated with feather-damaging behaviour. Of course, if you've got a bird with a heavy parasitic burden, you could have a malabsorption syndrome going on, and that will certainly be reflected in the quality of the feathers. Um, I will always check a new bird, checking it for intestinal parasites. But if this is a bird that's been living in a cage by itself for 10 years and has now got a skin issue, intestinal parasites aren't very high on my list of possibilities. Cool. That's really interesting. So we already talked about a little bit about feather damaging behavior, and I did want to um, go into a little bit more depth uh, in terms of how you approach these cases. I think the first thing, though, is how can vets recognize if a bird is showing feather-damaging behavior as opposed to something like pruritus or something? Brian Spear in the US always likes to say that all feather-damaging is a behavioral issue, but the behavior may be caused by a physical problem or it may be caused by a psychological problem. So I think that's a reasonable way to approach these cases, that the, the, there is a behaviour there, it's called feather-damaging behaviour. It may have a physical component, it may have a psychological component, it may have been a physical problem that's translated into a psychological component. 
So you really can't just easily distinguish between them. As a general rule, a pruritic bird will be constantly itchy throughout the consultation. He won't be able to leave himself alone and his feathers will have a very moth-eaten appearance to him. Okay? Whereas a bird that's engaging in feather-damaging behaviour if you, as a psychological issue will usually just sit back and watch what's going on and leave his feathers alone. So it's often quite obvious um, even to the untrained eye as to whether this bird has got a pruritic lesion or has got a, uh, a psychological issue. Okay. So the first step I do um, is talk to the owners about physical problems. We talk about diet, we talk about malnutrition, the effects of malnutrition, and then we'll suggest doing haematology and biochemistry as a screening test to see if there's any um, any issues going on. Um, there's a lot of vets around doing uh, faecal gram stains on these birds, um, and I fail to see the logic in that. Uh, we don't do a faecal culture on a dog with a skin problem. So why are we doing a faecal gram stain on a bird um, that has got normal droppings and but has a skin issue? And there's no correlation between the two. So it goes back to the days where many birds coming into the United States uh, were, were wild-caught birds held in quarantine stations and then sold to pet shops. And many of those birds had a range of pathological problems, um, in particular uh, faecal in or intestinal parasites. Um, so doing a faecal gram stain back then made sense. Doing a faecal gram stain as part of a routine workup today does not make sense uh, because most of our birds have been captive bred and haven't been exposed to the pathogens that those wild caught birds were. So I don't do faecal gram stains unless there's diarrhoea or some change in the droppings that makes me think maybe that there's a uh, an, an intestinal infection going on. So once I have ruled out a physical problem, and maybe I'll do radiographs depending on what we're seeing. If it's localised in one area, then I'll, I'll want to radiograph that area. Um, but CBC, biochem, radiographs, that's my basic workup and approach to these. If it's a young bird, um, I'll look at doing some PCR, testing it for chlamydia, testing it for beak and feather disease, testing it for polyomavirus. So once I've ruled out a physical problem, then I'll move into a behavioural analysis. And I do what's called an applied behavioural analysis, or the ABC, where B is the behaviour, described very clearly, unambiguous terms, without any attempt at interpretation. A is the antecedents, the social and environmental conditions that led to that behaviour. And C is the consequences. What does the bird get out of that behaviour? Often very difficult to understand what the bird gets out of pulling its feathers out of. So often the consequences are a bit airy-fairy. But we can usually work out what the A's are and describe what the B is. And then we can hypothesise about what the C may be. But in order to change the behaviour, we have to change either the consequence or the antecedent. And so that's going to be the basis of how I will approach this. The other thing I always tell my clients um, when we're embarking on the treatment of a behavioural feather-damaging bird is that a successful treatment is defined as the bird is happy, it's healthy, it's psychologically well-addressed, and it doesn't pull its feathers out as much as it used to. 
that's a successful treatment. Um, I always liken it to an alcoholic. Um, I have a, a good friend who was an alcoholic. If you tell him he used to be an alcoholic, he will tell you that he still is. He just doesn't drink anymore. And I think that's a great way to look at these feather damaging birds. They may not be pulling out their feathers now, but if something goes click in their minds, they'll go straight back to doing it again. So you, you can't ever cure feather damaging behaviour. You may reduce it, you may control it, it may go away for a while, but the potential is always there for it to come back. And you have to reinforce that to the clients before you start. Because if they're expecting that you're going to do a, a one-hit treatment and this bird will be fine after that and never need any other treatment again, um, they're going to be disappointed in you. Okay. Can you um, elaborate a little bit on what sort of questions you like to ask to find out those A, Bs and Cs? Okay, I'll ask them what the behaviour is. What does the bird actually do? Okay, is it pulling its feathers out? Is it chewing the feathers? Is it biting feathers off at the skin level? Um, is there any blood involved is always the question I ask. Is the bird bleeding at any stage? I'll get an idea an exact description of what the bird is doing. Then I will ask them, what's the antecedents? So what's the social, what's the environmental conditions? So the environmental conditions will be, what's his diurnal cycle like? Um, where is the cage located in the house? The social uh, antecedents are going to be things like, who interacts with him? When is this behaviour most likely to occur? Is there any particular time? Um, is it when, you know, this bird may be um, closest bond to the young female owner and she's just gotten married and moved away and mum and dad looking after the bird, bird started pulling its feathers out. So there's your social antecedent sitting there that this bird's uh, close bonding has been lost. Okay. So what is the consequences? What does the bird get out of this behaviour? Some people, when they see the bird pulling their feathers out, race over and make a fuss of it. So they're positively reinforcing that behaviour. That's just a, a very minor example of one possible consequence you can see. Okay. Now, I know that there are many, many, sounds like many different situations and you sort of need to gauge it case by case. Are there any, I guess, common things that you or patterns that you see um, when you're managing these cases? Are there any particular ones that come up again and again from some of your customers? The classical one is the hand-reared bird um, and often galahs. Uh, we don't see as many hand-reared galahs as we used to, um, but frequently people would take a wild galah out of the nest. Um, they would always tell me, oh, they found him in the middle of the paddock, the wind must have blown him out of his nest. And I would point out to them that these guys nest at the bottom of a hollow tree and unless there's a tree down somewhere, somebody's stolen him out of the nest. But these people will take this bird. Galahs are meant to be raised in groups of two, three or four birds. But the individual bird raised by itself without any other social interaction um, is an aberration of nature. In the wild, a single galah chick does not survive. We rear them in captivity. Nobody's there teaching them their social behaviours, what's acceptable behaviour, what's not acceptable, what things they should be doing, what are self-maintenance behaviours, what are innate behaviours. This bird's got no chance of learning those. So the behaviours that it does learn are based on self-gratification. So, you know, the bird screams, he gets somebody coming over and giving him a feed. 
so he learns to scream when he's hungry. The bird pulls some feathers out, people make a fuss of him, so he knows to do that. The other aspect of that poor socialisation is a particularly bleak condition called neophobia, where they become scared of anything new. Now, all young birds go through a period of neophobia, but if you haven't got the coping skills that have been reared with your siblings and your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and mum and dad, if you haven't got all those coping skills, um, then you don't know what to do. And these birds become incredibly phobic, screaming, throwing themselves around the cage, pulling all their feathers out. Um, every time you walk past, um, they just scream and flip off the perch. And that's a, a very bleak prognosis. Unless you've got a lot of time to work with those birds, um, they usually end up being euthanised because they're just so scared it's not fair to keep them alive. It's one of the classical ones that we see and hate to see. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, knowing there's no easy fix, how often do you review these birds? Yeah, we, we will start every initial consultation with a discussion about expectations. What's the client expecting? What am I expecting? Perhaps what the bird is expecting. Weekly revisits usually too soon. Um, I will give them a, a detailed questionnaire to fill in and ask them to bring that back in two weeks um, and to bring the bird back at that time. But on that first two weeks, I'll just get them making closer observations of the bird's behaviour. And then I take their closer observations and their questionnaire and I'll formulate a plan. Um, you, I'll do a behavioural analysis, formulate a plan, and then we'll start a treatment program. Um, some the treatment programs usually don't involve drugs. Uh, I rarely use psychotropic drugs um, because I, I want to try and control this bird. I shouldn't say control this bird. I want to help this bird um, as much as I can without the use of chemicals. There are times when I don't have a choice. Um, the bird is so anxious I may use a, um, a drug such as Haldol, Haloperidol, and just to take the edge off, or Midazolam or something like that. Um, I had one very nervous bird recently, um, and we had the client giving it intranasal midazolam um, three or four times a day just to keep it calm and relaxed until it got – it was a young blue and gold macaw with neophobia. And we were able to break that anxiety using midazolam enough for positive reinforcement training to get through to the little guy, and then he relaxed and calmed down and is no longer on any medication. And on that note – when do you decide to use e-collars or foam neck braces when you see these sort of destructive behaviours? Uh, yeah. Is there a right time to use them or not? When there is blood involved. If the bird is making itself bleed, then I'll use an e-collar or a foam neck brace. If there is no blood involved, there is no place for an e-collar. Um, e-collars and foam neck braces unbalance the bird. It makes them very anxious, uh, very stressed. Um, and you'll actually uh, worsen an anxiety problem using an e-collar. A lot of vets like to use them, and the, the feathers all grow back, but as soon as you take them off, the bird starts pulling its feathers out again because you've not addressed the, the primary problem. You've just made an additional problem for the bird. Sure. I did want to um, segue a little bit and actually just now talk about superficial tannous ulcerative dermatitis uh, because I think that, <laughs> Sorry, I've just lost my train of thought then. Um, it's scud. <laughs> Superficial cutaneous 
Superficial cutaneous ulcerated, uh, superficial chronic ulcerated dermatitis. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I I was just thinking back to feather damaging behavior, and I was just thinking there's so much to talk about. You could talk about talk about it for days. <laughs> yeah, um, and then we come up with an answer. Yeah, that's that's right. On to scud. Could you tell us a little bit about what causes those things, particularly in the patagia and the axilla? Uh, the answer is that we don't know. Uh, that's that's putting it fairly bluntly. Um, we first started seeing this in lovebirds, and at that time it was postulated that it may have been a pox virus or something, some other virus. That's never been demonstrated, never been proved. Um, Alex Rosenwax down in Sydney has been doing some work um, biopsying cockatiels um, with scud, and he's finding quite a few of them have got a um, adenocarcinoma, a cutaneous adenocarcinoma. Uh, that hasn't been my experience. I've biopsied these and haven't had any come back neoplastic. Um, we don't generally know what the inciting lesion is um, and we don't understand why it's bilateral in some birds, unilateral in other birds, why it's in the axilla in some and the prepatagium in others. Uh, we're dealing with a multifactorial problem um, and, and multiple etiologies are quite possible. So, yeah, the answer is we just don't really know. Okay. So you mentioned that you do, you've biopsied some in the past. Are there any other diagnostic tests um, or investigations that you do when you are presented with these cases? Yes, we'll do CBC, biochems, radiographs, and a culture. So we'll take a swab from the lesion and culture it. We need to know, if it's particularly if it's unilateral, we need to know is there something like an osteosarcoma underneath that that's so painful that the bird's chewing at it? And, and I have seen a couple like that. We need to know if the bird has got issues with its liver or kidney. We need to get an idea what its white cell count's going to be. Um, we need to identify the type of bacteria that's involved and what's the best antibiotic to use. That's not just for uh, antimicrobial resistance, um, but it's also because we are finding some weird bugs. Um, and you'll find we had one in a, a bird just recently Swabbed this bird who had Klebsiella, Pseudomonas uh, and Proteus growing all swarming through this um, this lesion. And it was we had to really pick through carefully the sensitivity pattern to identify the most appropriate antibiotic. Um, this particular bird um, has taken us nearly two months to get the lesions to start to heal. Wow. And three times we've swabbed it. Three times we've got different culture IDs and different sensitivity patterns. So you do need to be prepared to repeat your culture and identify just what's going on. Okay. Uh, before you get your first result back, do you what sort of first-line antibiotics or treatment that you give these birds? Okay, so my antibiotics of choice, um, amoxicillin clavulanic acid to start with. I rarely go for enrofloxacin first up. I find that enro is really only suitable if you've got a gram-negative infection. And the problem we're seeing is a continuing emerging pattern of resistance to enrofloxacin. So I try not to use it as a first-line antibiotic. So amoxicillin clavulanic acid, until I get my sensitivity results back, is, is my usual approach. And I use it at a much higher dose rate than dogs and cats, um, 125 milligrams per kilogram. And I will give that two or three times a day. So it's a, a very different dose rate and frequency in birds compared to 
uh, our dogs and cats, and it's because of the bioavailability of the drug combined with the um, the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the drug within the body. Have you noticed any resistant um, staffs or anything like that? I don't know if you've ever picked up any of those on your cultures. No, I haven't come across any MRSAs on my cultures. Um, I did have a chicken with uh, panodermatitis that had a multi-drug resistant E. coli infection. And that bird had been treated with every type of antibiotic by three other vets before it came to me for a culture. Yeah, I was reading up about it and I was just like, I wonder whether people are seeing that in practice in Australia. Yeah. I'm sure they are. Um, but I think all Australian vets, including myself, are slow to culture and we, we need to get better at doing cultures first um, rather than just trying this antibiotic and that antibiotic. We have a, a responsibility um, towards the general population to minimise our use of antibiotics and trying to use the most specific antibiotic whenever we can. And we all have to have a, big, a good think about our prescribing guidelines before the medical profession has our prescribing rights removed from us. Too true. I think if we're not careful, we're going to be setting ourselves up for some real problems with antibiotic resistance in the future. Uh, just um, bringing it back to Scud, though, uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the surgery treatments that you can do uh, and what the challenges are that you face when doing those. Firstly, the, the biggest challenge is they're slow to heal. It's a superficial, chronic, ulcerative dermatitis, and they're slow to get there, they're slow to come back. Um, this one bird I've just been treating now, we're in about our eighth or tenth week of treatment, and that's been weekly revisits. Um, we have tr we've tried starting off with um, you know, just keeping the wounds clean, uh, using an e-collar or a foam brace to keep the bird away from it because now there there is blood involved and we need to prevent that. Um, this particular bird, we've had our best ex ex um, success by suturing a hydrocolloid dressing over the lesion. So we've been using Duoderm Ultra Thin, um, which is a hydrocolloid dressing used in little old leg ladies with leg ulcers. And we find that if we suture it to the skin over the lesion, it creates a nice moist environment that encourages the wound to start healing, um, gets rid of the scabs, and we will get a fairly rapid contracture of the, the lesions. But as soon as you stop it, the lesions can come back if you're unlucky. So this has been this bird we've been treating now, as I said, for ten weeks. Part of the issue has been that uh, we nearly got it healed with hydrocolloid dressings. We stopped the hydrocolloid dressings for one week, and the bird took it back to where we were. Okay. So. How how often are you changing those hydrocolloid dressings? I change them once a week. Okay. Uh, I generally put them on the first time and change after three days, and then once a week after that. Okay. And is it just some sort of absorbable suture that you use? Well, I suture it with 4-O-PDS. Um, that's simply because that's what the suture I use for everything. And then we seal the edges with tissue glue to keep it all, um, stop it from drying out. We don't want it to dry out. Okay, sure. Um, is that, that's mostly probably related to not damage the um, tendons and things like that, is it? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to just take another segue now, and I just wanted to talk about citizine beak and feather disease, uh, which is a really common thing. A lot of vets are seeing it. 
just wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of what it is and how it spreads. So PBFD is a viral infection um, found in parrots. Um, it's citizine beak and feather disease. It's a virus that attacks the, um, the cells in the body that most rapidly divide. So these are the feather follicles, um, the germinal epithelium layer of the keratin in the beak, um, but also the immune system. So it's a, a terribly some, um, immunosuppressive virus. Now, there's a couple of things I need to clarify there. Um, firstly, we do see circovirus, the PVFD virus, in other species such as canaries um, and in pigeons. So there's a pigeon circovirus. Slightly, slight variations on the parrot one, um, but the similar virus, uh, same family of viruses. Um, secondly, the beak lesions that we will see with beak and feather disease are seen in cockatoos only. I haven't seen it in any other species. So the beak overgrowth, um, the underrunning of the keratin, the crumbling of the beak, the beak snapping off, those are cockatoo lesions. We won't see that in other species. Most species will show feather loss. Um, cockatoos um, on the crest in particular, you'll see dystrophic feathers on the crest, um, but you'll see generalised feather loss all over the body. And in particular, the powder down feathers, which are over the thigh, these are the feathers that produce that fine white powder that keeps cockatoos clean and looking white. That disappears. And the result is that you have these dirty appearing birds um, and when you handle them, you get no powder on your hands. So in other species, though, lorikeets have their own particular set of um, clinical signs. They lose the primary feathers on their wings and their tail. So they're often picked up as wild birds um, running around on the footpath. And they're unable to fly because the primaries have been lost and they don't have a, a very long tail. Their, their tail feathers are missing. Lorikeets often seem to recover from the virus and will regrow their feathers, but we do know that those birds, in actual fact, are still carrying the virus and still shedding it. So they're not cured of it, they're just in remission. Other Australian parrots, you'll see um, feathers falling out easily, you'll see green feathers turning yellow, blue feathers turning white, um, you'll see very untidy looking plumage. But again, that overgrown beak is something that we only see in our cockatoos. They're the ones that everyone sees on all the images and posters and things like that. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the acute and chronic forms? Um, the acute form is seen in young birds, and it's when the viral load is enough that it smashes their immune system, and these birds will become acutely immunosuppressed. The classic ones you'll see it in is in your African grey parrots, but I have also seen it in red-tailed black cockatoos and just recently in an umbrella cockatoo. These birds usually present um, severely anemic. Uh, they were healthy one day, unwell the next day and dead on the third day. There's usually no feather changes because there hasn't been time for those feather changes to occur. Other birds are a little older and their immune system is a little better defend, um, developed. Those birds will develop the more chronic form and they will have the beak overgrowth in the case of cockatoos. They'll have the feather loss, the feather colour changes. Um, some of those birds um, will live long and reasonably happy lives, but most of them 
uh, will die within two years of immunosuppression and secondary diseases associated with that. And then, of course, the most common form that nobody actually ever sees is the transient form. And this is where a bird becomes infected with the virus. The virus can be detected in its bloodstream using PCR, but then the bird's immune system eliminates the virus from the bird's body. The bird has never become ill. It's mounted a strong immune response um, and it will never contract the virus again or never contract the disease again, I should say. And those birds show no clinical signs. But these are birds that often are picked up on a health screen as positive for beacon feather disease and then are euthanized, even though they're not showing any clinical signs. And that's a, a big mistake that a lot of people make. And it's one of my, uh, my, my little issues I have with the DNA testing companies is that they offer DNA testing to the public. So the public are sending in feathers for beacon feather testing. It comes back, or blood spots, I should say, not feathers. It comes back positive on the blood for beacon feather disease, so they kill the bird. And in actual fact, if they'd retested it in a month, it probably would have been clear. So it's a lack of understanding of interpretation of the results um, that people, you know, shouldn't really do their own lab testing. So just to clarify, are these birds that completely overcome that infection so they're not subclinical yeah, or no, at risk of recurrence? No, they're not at risk of reoccurrence or subclinical carriers. Or most of them, are, I shouldn't say not, most of them are not carriers. These are birds that were simply exposed to the virus, uh, their immune system dealt with it, and for a short period of time they were viremic, um, but then eliminated the virus from their body. Well, that's like a real big game changer for a lot of bird owners. Well, it's a, it's a game changer for everybody when you think about um, not everybody who goes to the cinema picks up the flu from the guy down in the front row. But I guarantee you if you did a, a PCR on everybody's blood, that all test positive for the flu virus. Yes. Simply through exposure. Mm-hmm. So, But that's what people, when they're testing their birds, don't understand. They think if it's got the virus in their blood, it must have the disease. And in actual fact, it may be transient. Sure. So you talked a little bit about diagnosis, and I know that you just mentioned PCR. What do you recommend for vets to use to diagnose this disease? Okay, firstly, the... Um, the, the most sensitive test is a physical examination, looking at the bird, seeing if it's got signs consistent with beacon feather disease. If you're not sure, then you should test it. And there's two levels of testing. Um, PCR, which is normally performed on blood, but again, that doesn't pick up or distinguish between um, a bird that's transiently viremic and a bird that is infected. You can do PCR on a feather, in particular those powder-down feathers over the thigh. And if the feathers come back positive for the virus, then it's more convincing that this bird is infected and has the disease. Shane Radel at the Charles Sturt University has developed a serological test for beacon feather disease. Um, HAHI, hemagglutination and hemagglutination inhibition. It works on the principle that um, if the sample being tested um, has got virus in it, it will cause erythrocytes to agglutinate in a, um, in a controlled test. Um, if there are antibodies to the virus, um, those erythrocytes won't agglutinate. So it's a test that enables us to not only pick up the virus, 
but also the bird's response to it. So it's the most sensitive and specific way of diagnosing the disease. Unfortunately for many bird owners, it's also the most expensive way to diagnose the disease. It really becomes a, an issue of several hundred dollars per bird to do HA, HI and PCR on it, whereas you can send off a sample, um, a drop of blood from your bird's toe um, to a DNA lab and for $40 they'll test it for you. And so that's what a lot of owners go to. Um, and as I said, see, not so much the test I'm concerned about, it's the interpretation of the results. Um, that's very worrying to me. So for people that don't have the financial ability to go for that more expensive test, could they at least maybe repeat that DNA test in a month or two? I always recommend if you get a positive result in a bird that's not showing clinical lesions, that you retest it a month later. That makes sense. I heard that there was some sort of work in terms of creating a vaccine for this disease. But I don't know whether that's something that is being developed or is something available or is just something still on the you know research phase. Um, it's, it's right on the fence line. Um, Shane Radle has been doing the work. Um, he's produced a vaccine. He's shown that it works. Unfortunately, it's not commercially available yet. Um, I know that because I tried to get some out of him a couple of weeks ago. And, um, yeah, it's not commercially available. He can't um, give it to colleagues um, because the terms of his animal ethics application means that it's not available until all the testing is finished. The vaccine itself was developed many years ago by Shane and Gary Cross from Sydney University. Um, unfortunately, at that stage, um, the government insisted that the virus, uh, the vaccine be tested on every species of bird likely to be subjected to it. And this was going to be all 365 species of parrot. And they wanted to see safety trials on 10 to 20 birds of each species. Oh, gosh. The constant, you know, the millions of dollars that that would have cost made the vaccine prohibitive. Um, so that was quietly shelved. So Shane has um, had another go at it. And I think the. Um, uh, AVMA, not the AVMA, was it the Australian APVMA, Australian Pesticide Veterinary Medicals Authority, is having a, a different view on how this vaccine would be trialled and tested. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine in the future. Well, I, I'd say within a couple of years we'll probably have a commercially available vaccine. I'm hoping, but we were, we were saying that over 10 years ago too. So. <laughs> Fair enough. With the fact that we don't have a vaccine now, when you do have patients that are positive for this disease and are showing clinical signs, how do you manage them? Um, what are the options? The options aren't good. You need to realistically point out to the client this is an immunosuppressive infectious disease that is contagious. Um, so this bird will infect other birds that it comes into contact with and it's likely that it will die within two years of diagnosis. Statistically, we know that more than 90% of these birds die within two years. So many clients will opt to euthanase at that stage. If the client opts not to euthanase um, and they're in a single bird household, they're aware of the risk to other birds, then palliative care, ensuring it's on a good diet, that the husbandry is good, good hygiene around it. Some of those birds will live very long lives. Um, others will find themselves in two years' time crashing with other diseases 
or their beak will overgrow and then snap off um, if it's a cockatoo. And I always uh, warn people that if they've got a cockatoo with beak and feather disease, that if it gets to that stage, we need to euthanise now simply because um, that's quite painful to have your beak break off and just sit there trying to pick food up with a bloodied stump of a beak. So that's not fair on the bird. Yes. For those people that have outdoor aviaries, what sort of measures that can they put in um, to try and prevent their outdoor pets from getting this disease from the wild populations? Well, firstly, the, the virus is spread in feather dust, in droppings, respiratory secretions and oral secretions. So one bird feeding another bird, sneezing or coughing in the face of another bird, um, the virus pours out through their, their droppings um, and it also comes out through their feathers and the powder down. So basically everything that this animal is dropping somewhere is infectious. However, the solution to pollution is dilution. So in an outdoor aviary setting, um, the chances of getting it from a wild bird just flying past is pretty slim. Completely roofing the aviary so that wild cockatoos can't um, stand on the floor on the roof of the aviary and defecate into the feed dish underneath. That's a good way to go. Making sure that if you have wild cockatoos around, um, you can establish a food dump for them well away from the aviaries. So they go to the back corner of the yard, which is where you drop all the drop off all the food that the yellow birds haven't eaten. You drop it down there and that attracts those cockatoos to the food dump and away from your aviary. Um, good hygiene, cleaning things down on a regular basis, um, those are the sorts of things that will help to prevent your birds from getting it. Great. Thanks for that. So I did want to talk now a bit um, away from the uh, medicine side of things, and I actually wanted to ask about your book or your second edition of your book. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've done and why you decided to make a new edition? The... Um the first edition was uh, was published by Manson Publishing in the UK. Um, they were bought out by the new publishers who then asked me to uh, to produce a second edition. I was pleased that they did because some very good friends and colleagues had written some reviews uh, on the first edition that were very, very kind but pointed out glaring mistakes like um, in the anatomy chapter in the first edition, I put nothing about cardiovascular anatomy or neurological anatomy. I completely forgot to put it in. Um, so yeah, Scott Eccles very kindly pointed that out in a review, and um, I took that point as it was intended, helpful advice. And so when the new publishers asked me to, uh, to produce a second edition, um, I went back to that anatomy chapter as an example and added in a section on cardiovascular anatomy and on uh, neurological anatomy. Um, the chapters on uh, radiology and endoscopy I expanded. Um, I had them lumped in together under one chapter called diagnostic imaging. So I created a second endoscopy chapter and then expanded the radiology chapter um, and also added some information about CT scanning and MRIs. Um, and then in the disease chapters, I just went through all of the diseases that I had listed in the disease chapters and made sure that the information that was in there um, was up to date because textbooks are out of date as soon as they're published. Um, that's, that's a given. We all know that a textbook is not as current as a journal article or an online review. 
So we, we always struggle with textbooks and making sure that they're up to date and therefore relevant. So I was able to go back and update a lot of information, for example, on um, internal papillomatous disease, which we now know is caused by a herpes virus. I think when the first edition came out, we were thinking it was caused by herpes virus. Now we now know which one it is. Um, and uh, proventricular dilatation disease. We thought it was a viral infection. We now know that it's associated with avian bornavirus. So we were, I was able to update a lot of those things. So it's the, um, the information on diseases is updated and I've expanded other sections and I've put in all the stuff that I missed on the first edition that uh, my friends pointed out to me. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I actually had a read of your book as well. It's pretty, it's pretty helpful. When you wrote the book, were you directing it more for the inexperienced avian vet or were you uh, writing it more for the general practitioner who has an avian interest? Well, there's, there's three target audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the veterinary student, the undergraduate, um, who wants to learn more about avian medicine. The second is the general practitioner who's busy and doesn't need to know the detailed physiology and anatomy, the um, the detailed pathogenesis of disease and a detailed discussion on which drugs to use. He just needs to know what are the clinical signs, how do you diagnose it, how do you treat it. So that was the, that, the major target audience. And the third target audience was for people who were preparing to sit their membership and fellowship exams to basically give them a lot of um, broad, basic information on everything that they could then use as a study guide and add to it. Very good. And, Bob, you're also the author or, should I say, a primary editor of another book, but in this time in reptiles. Can you tell us how that came about? Um. When you, when you treat birds, people assume that you'll treat anything that's a little different. And so all of us who have been treating birds over the years have noticed increasing numbers of reptiles coming in to see us. Um, the two textbooks that were basically available, um, the BSAVA Manual in Reptiles, which talked about European reptiles, and Douglas Marder's um, tome on reptile medicine and surgery, which is still the Bible to go to, um, though that, but it was a very Amerocentric book. Um, so it was talking about red-eared sliders and iguanas and nobody was talking about bearded dragons and carpet pythons. So we, a group of us, Robert Johnson, Dead Monks, um, Brendan Carmel and myself, um, all exotics vets, all very good friends, close friends, um, having one day about the Americans controlling the... Um, the publication world, and I said, well, why don't we write a book? Um, we can get a more international audience. We can talk about Australian reptiles. We can have Australians writing chapters. Um, and I think we probably had a couple of drinks too many because we all agreed <laughs> that this would be a really good idea. And we set to it, and we now have a, a book um, that has an international team of authors, including some Americans. My biggest regret is that it's not as big as it could be, we could have doubled the size of that book without any effort at all. We had to leave a lot of valuable information from some authors out simply because of word restrictions. It wasn't the, you know, the idea of it was that it was going to be a guide for a busy practitioner. And um, if people wanted to know more, um, Doug Marder's book is out there and 
well worth a read, um, but it's an incredibly large, heavy book. So a lot of people don't have it, which is a shame because it is a brilliant book. On that note, other than your own books, is there any other book that you most recommend vets to read? It doesn't have to be a vet book, by the way. (laughs) Well, I'm a voracious reader. I read a tremendous amount of stuff on all sorts of things. Um, I'm not really good into reading self-help books. My attention span's not good enough for that. Um, I did read The Barefoot Investor. I thought that was pretty good. Gave me some good ideas. Um, But, you know, probably the best book I think I've ever read was um, The Broken Years by Bill Gamage. Um, Bill Gamage is a military historian employed at the Australian War Memorial. And The Broken Years is his PhD thesis. And his thesis was on how attitudes of Australian soldiers changed during the First World War. And he was able to show how um, men had evolved from a um, God, king and country mentality to, I don't think I'm going to survive this. And it shows how people think. It gives For veterinarians, it gives you an insight into your clients um, because there's all sorts of different personalities there. Um, it teaches resilience. It teaches endurance, um, and it fills you with appreciation for what the ordinary person can do. And I, you can't read The Broken Years without coming away from a, a much humbler person than when you started. So it is a, a book that I always recommend. I gave a copy to my son recently to read. Fantastic. Sounds like a good read. I do have three more questions just to wrap things up. One of them was, if you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself when you were a recent graduate, what would it be and why? Probably just don't take it too seriously. Um, don't take it personally. You, you will meet, you'll meet clients who hate you and you'll hate them. Don't take it personally. Um, everybody hates them and they hate everybody. Don't get too wrapped up in your own problems to realise that other people have got problems too. So just take take life a little easier, a little steadier. You're going to get to the same place in the end, um, but the journey is going to be what makes the difference. And if you become too intense, too focused, too worked up, it can be a pretty uncomfortable journey. Yes, yeah, I can see that. My next question is, it's another one of those sorts of questions, is if you could send one text to every vet in the world, what would it be and why? A text. Yes, a text message. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and the, the, the other one is, and this is something that I've often thought about, it's a comment made to me um, by the previous president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and it is something that vets should dwell on. And he said to me, every day, every person in the world has their life touched by a veterinarian, whether it's the food on your plate, the animal by your side, or just watching birds flying overhead, your life, their lives are touched every day by the actions of veterinarians. So we do make a difference, and it's often a far greater difference than we realise. Yeah, I really like that. I've never heard that, and that's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> now, for people that are listening, how can people find out more about you and about your work? UQ has got some information there on there under their UQ researchers and on the, uh, the Small Animal Hospitals website. Um, other than that, come up to me at a conference. I'm often at conferences. 
I'm vice president of the AVA at the moment anyway, and um, I'm, so I'm at national AVA conferences. Uh, anybody wants to have a chat to me, can come up and have a yarn. Um, I'm more than happy to, to stop and talk to people. Sounds great. So I just wanted to take the uh, moment just to thank you for being able to give up some of your time. I know you're a very busy man, so I really appreciate you being able to have a talk with me tonight. And, yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Simon. It's been, been an entertaining talk and I'm trying to think of a text I would send to everybody. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hi, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you like the podcast, please spend a couple of minutes to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot and it will help us get the podcast out there. Also, if you have any feedback or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers who you think would be great on the podcast, please email me at contact at inquisitivevet.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. The Inquisitive Vet podcast is brought to you by Bar Vets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.